0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter one is where we'll be at this morning. The Gospel of John in chapter one. And as you're turning to the Gospel of John, let me invite you back this evening for our five fifteen evening worship service. Pastor Dan will be preaching again from uh, some of uh, some of the, the the things that he covered in his book on the way that Jesus unites his ethnically divided church. He'll be preaching from Luke in chapter four. I Trust it will be an encouragement to us. So I invite you back, 5.15, for our evening service. For this morning, John chapter 1 is our text. It's really remarkable. It's a very simple text. It's about Jesus calling some of his first disciples, Andrew and John, meeting Jesus. A simple story, but a very profound account of what it means to meet Jesus. So I want to begin our time by just reading from God's word. So would you look down at John chapter 1 and follow with me as I read, beginning in verse 35 down to verse 42. Let's read from God's word, John chapter 1 and verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, this is the Word of God. Let me begin this morning by asking, if I can, a little bit of a trivia question. What do you suppose these things have in common? The island of Crete, the island in the Mediterranean, Colorado Springs, and Oklahoma. Not a lot, but they share the exact same marketing slogan, Come and see for yourself, along with about 12 other potential travel destinations for you, because there's just this basic axiomatic understanding we have, that there's a big difference between knowing about something, knowing about the plains of Oklahoma or the island of Crete, and having personal acquaintance with it. And this is true for so many areas of life. We're celebrating Mother's Day this morning, and I grew up in the generation of American high school students who, before recent changes in our culture, went through a health curriculum where we learned about conception, development of human life in the womb, all the way to birth, and it culminated that section of our teaching with a viewing of the VHS tape called The Miracle of Life Where I and my classmates learned about conception and the way the embryo develops, the fetus develops, and culminates in seeing a live birth. And we went from amazement to horror. So we knew something about the way that human life develops, but that kind of intellectual knowledge, we understand there's a chasm between that and the personal knowledge of having a child. It's a qualitatively, categorically different experience when it's human life, in your, it, when it's your child. It's categorically different. The Gospel of John is written to us so that we can have that kind of uh, a jump in our spiritual life, to go from some intellectual knowledge of Jesus, who is the most famous person who has ever lived, more books have been written about him, more songs sung to him, more paintings painted of him, and it's not even close, more than any other person in the history of the world, and have some intellectual knowledge of him, but go from that to actual personal experiential acquaintance with him for yourself, that's what the gospel of John was written for. John tells us that's his purpose in John chapter 20 and verse 31, where he says, These things have been written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. Not just intellectual knowledge, but by believing have the eyes of faith to see that Jesus is who he is and to know him for yourself. That's the point of the Gospel of John. And this Gospel begins by telling us of the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, whose life we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, and we saw that. In the first stage of john the baptist ministry as he's gathering these crowds of tens of thousands of people who are going out to the desert to hear his message and be baptized by him he was asked who are you and he answered that question by saying that's the wrong question in fact you should be asking who is this one who is coming and john redirects and says you need to be asking about the one that's coming In the next stage of his ministry, Jesus appears in the scene and John tells everybody, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John launches into the question, who is he? And he gives detailed explanation of who that person is. He's the, the Lamb of God who's going to be the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, who's going to bear the penalty for sin that a holy God must judge for sin. This Jesus is going to bear that penalty in the place of sinners, so he can take away their sins. And this Jesus himself is a preexistent one who forever has existed in the presence of God the Father, and he's the giver of God's very spirit because he himself is God, in fact, he's the son of God, the fullness of his glory, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's a pretty spectacular person. And in this stage of John's ministry, this little section that we just read, we're kind of crossing the threshold, where John has turned from saying, you need to get ready for him, and here he is, and this is what he's like, and now we're in a very different scene. You'll notice in verse 35, he's not among the crowds, telling the crowds who Jesus is. Verse 35, he's standing with two of his disciples. It's a much more intimate scene. He's there with two of his friends, and now he turns to them and he says, okay, I've told you about who he is, and now it's time for you to go meet him for yourself, You need to leave me, and you need to go meet Jesus for yourself. What this passage really shows is it shows us what it means to know Jesus for yourself. It's a passage that walks through, we could say, the cycle of Christian discipleship. I think that's a good heading, a good paradigm for us to understand this passage. This is a passage about the cycle of Christian discipleship. The cycle of Christian discipleship, there's three stages to it. There's an introduction to Jesus. There's a personal encounter with Jesus for yourself that produces a life change in which you begin to invite other people to know Jesus for themselves. And that cycle keeps going and going and going and comes all the way down to the modern day. That's the cycle that every disciple of Jesus right now is engaged in. And I think this passage presents us with an opportunity to evaluate our own spiritual condition and ask ourselves, where am I in this cycle and where do I need to grow to be a more faithful disciple of Jesus? So let's walk through this passage together. This cycle of Christian discipleship begins with the first phase. It's a personal introduction. A personal introduction to Jesus. You see that in verse 35. As I said, there's this intimate scene. John's with his two disciples and he looks at Jesus. And notice, he looked at Jesus. He didn't just see him. This is a a slightly more rare word for looking at. It's a compound verb in the original language that has the connotation of looking at something a little bit more intently and evaluating it. And this particular verb usually occurs in the context where you're sizing something up. So Mark chapter 10, for example, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The text says that Jesus looked at him. He sized him up and loved him and so told him truth about how he could inherit eternal life. Mark in chapter 14, as Peter is following Jesus on the way to Jesus' trial, it says that the servant girl looked at Peter, sized him up and discerned that he was a Galilean and a disciple of Jesus. And so that's the verb that's used here. It's a fairly rare verb and it says that John the Baptist, as Jesus is walking by, looked at him, sized up Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the only Savior of the world. That's the one who can take away your sins. And he says to his two friends, the implication is, you need to go follow him. You need to go meet him for yourself. This is the first phase of Christian discipleship. There has to be a personal introduction to Jesus. It happens in a million different ways. You'd be a teacher, a parent, a friend, or you're just alone in a hotel room and really bored, and you open the drawer, and there's a Bible. But somehow, someway, you are introduced to Jesus. And I think before moving on, it's worth mentioning that this is the last thing that John does. This is the culmination of John the Baptist's life. At this stage in his life, he is the most famous person in the nation. And the last thing he does is he tells his friends, leave me and follow him. And then he disappears off the pages of the Gospel of John. If you look at the grand scope of Scripture, John the Baptist played a crucial role in God's redemptive plans for the world he brought God's redemptive plans right up to the threshold of the next phase of God's movement where he's bringing the Messiah into the world who would actually achieve the salvation that he had promised for thousands of years. But John the Baptist himself doesn't actually cross over the threshold. He doesn't actually see the death and resurrection of Jesus for himself and he's perfectly content with that. All he wants to do is tell other people to get to know Jesus for themselves. The culmination of his life is that John decreases so that Jesus can increase and he's really content with that well look at what the disciples do they're told by their friend their mentor their leader john the baptist there's the lamb of god follow him so verse 37 the disciples heard this and they simply followed jesus and we're going to look at the rest of this account of what it looks like to follow jesus but i think it's worth asking one more question before moving on to the second phase and that is if you have read the other gospels matthew mark and luke you have learned of the encounter or the, we could say the call of Andrew and Peter and James and John. And in fact, it is Andrew and John in this passage. These are the two disciples with John. Notice in verse 40, it explicitly says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The second disciple isn't mentioned explicitly, but it's likely that he is the author of this book, the Apostle John. And we say that be, that's the traditional way that this text has been interpreted in the Christian church, and that's Because of things like, at the end of verse 39, there's this funny little detail mentioned. The end of verse 39 says that when they went to follow Jesus, it was about the 10th hour, which seems like a random detail. But in ancient historical, biographical literature, those are the kind of details that gave evidence that this is coming from an eyewitness. He would give corroborating details to affirm this is eyewitness testimony that could be tested. And so it's likely that this is the author of scripture giving his first person account of his first time encountering Jesus. So I'm going to refer to these two disciples as Andrew, who we know, and John, who I think it's most likely is the second disciple. And you might ask the question, if I have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems like all these disciples, their first encounter with Jesus was a little bit different. Let's just recall for a second, look at an example In Matthew in chapter 4, here's an account of the call of Peter and Andrew. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And you might ask, that seems a little different than this account. That account, they're in Galilee, and they're fishing in the sea, and here they're in the Judean wilderness. They're nowhere near fishing nets. As you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you find that this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke occurs later in Jesus' life and ministry. After John the Baptist had been arrested and Jesus had gone back up into Galilee and begun his messianic ministry in earnest, then he called Andrew and Peter to follow him as apostles. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, assumes that you've already read the first three Gospels that were written and that you know that, and he wants to back up and he wants to tell you about the first time Andrew and Peter and John met Jesus. Before they were called into apostolic ministry, what did it look like for them to encounter Jesus, to discover him for the first time for themselves? That's what this account is that we're reading this morning. They've been introduced to Jesus by their friend John the Baptist. They're following Jesus because they're curious. What an intriguing introduction that their mentor who they trust has said that's the one who can take away their sins. So they're going to go investigate. But that introduction has to proceed. It has to advance for it to make any difference. It has to actually culminate in a personal encounter with Jesus for yourself. That's the second phase of Christian discipleship. And you see that, look down at verse 38 in the text. In verse 38... What we're going to see in these two verses, 38 and 39, is a two-way interaction between Jesus and Andrew and John. That's the nature of a personal encounter, it's a two-way interaction. The first party to act in verse 38 is Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? What a question. This question, like many of Jesus' questions, functions on two levels. On one level, he's just asking He's in the desert. There's two guys following him. Hey guys, what do you want? (laughs) But more than that, Jesus is looking at them and he's asking them, what is it that you're seeking in life? Why are you following me? What do you want out of me? What do you really want? What are you really after? If you're going to have an encounter with Jesus, he's going to ask you that question. He's going to ask you, what is it that you're really seeking? Is there a problem in your life you think I can solve for you? A dilemma that you need untangled? Is there a question that you need answered? Is there some wisdom that you need in order to navigate some challenge? What is it that you're really seeking? Because what you're really seeking is going to determine whether you actually find anything from Jesus or not. Jesus confronts Andrew and John right away with, be honest with yourself. What is it that you really want out of Jesus? And look at the way that they respond at the end of verse 38. Look down in your Bibles. They respond to him in verse 38. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? You see what they're asking is they're saying, it's not just a question that we want to pose to you. We don't want to test you with something. It's not just some advice that we want. It's not a book recommendation that we're seeking. Where are you staying? Because we want to follow you and we want to spend some time with you because we really want to get to know you. We've heard from our friend that you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that you're the eternal Son of God, that you're the giver of God's Spirit, that you're God's chosen Messiah and we want to know you for ourselves. If you are who our friend has said you are, then that is going to make every difference in my life. If, if you are who my friend said you are, then I can't just fit you into my life. You're not just an answer to help me solve something. You're not just another voice among many in my life. If you really are who my friend says you are, then I can't fit you in my life. I have to conform everything in my life to yours. I really want to spend time with you, Jesus, for yourself. I want to know who you are truly, really. I want to know you. That's the nature of a personal encounter, is that you want to know Jesus for Jesus. Not Jesus as a means to an end. You know the difference. Every parent knows the difference. When you walk in the door and your kid says, "Ah, how was your day? All right, what do you want? (laughs) Or the moments when you can see that your kid is genuinely developing respect and affection for you. There's a qualitative difference. There's a difference in approaching Jesus as a means to some end, and there's Approaching Jesus because he is the end in himself and you really want to know him for yourself. That's the way the disciples approach Jesus. And look at the way that Jesus responds. Verse 39. Verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. In other words, he received them. He welcomed them. He didn't turn them away. He said, I see that you want to know me, and he embraced them. That's what Jesus does. Jesus says this over and over himself. For example, John 6, 37, Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus receives all who comes to him. He's a savior. He wants those who come to him to know him, to love him, to embrace him. He receives them. But notice the very specific language that he uses. The order of his response to the disciples is important. He says, come and you will see. Come is a command and you will see is a future guarantee. And it matters that it's in that order. He begins with a command. You want to see if I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want to see if I am who I am. You want to see the realities of God, you want to see spiritual truth, you want to understand God and his ways, first you have to obey. You have to be willing to come to me on my terms. He begins with a command, come. You have to be willing to receive Jesus as he is, to accept Jesus' demands, to come humbly and open-handed and say, whatever you say, I will do. You say, come, I'll come. You say, go, I'll go. You say, bow, I'll bow. You say, jump, I'll jump. You say, believe, I'll believe. I'm going to come to you humbly on your terms. If you would come to Jesus, you first have to heed him. Poor in spirit, mourning, submissive, ready to receive his word. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you come to me on my terms, you will see You'll perceive spiritual reality. You'll see the truth of who I am. You will know me, and you'll know eternal life. But if you want to know me and know eternal life, you have to actually entrust yourself to me for yourself. Now, that's a big leap. But I would suggest that we are creatures who do much crazier things all the time. Begin by saying that... Many travel destinations have the slogan, come and see for yourself. So you want to see the island of Crete. I've heard it's beautiful. If you want to come and see it for yourself, you're going to have to take a little bit of a leap. Unless you are Aquaman, you're going to have to fly there. And that means you've got to get on a plane. So you've got to ask the question, do you trust pilots? Probably. I mean, they're not perfect. There's a f- fairly famous survey that went around a couple years ago in which a pilots union surveyed over 100 or not 100, 500 commercial pilots, the BBC reported, and of these 500 commercial pilots, 60% of them said that they had fallen asleep in the course of a flight. And you say, "All right, that's fine. There's a co-pilot, right? There's two of them for a reason, no big deal." But over a third of those who said that they had fallen asleep confessed that they woke up and found their co-pilot asleep. But there's autopilot right those machines there's a lot of time and energy goes into them they're pretty reliable and i would say yeah i jump in planes i trust that somehow sleeping pilots faulty planes somehow or other i'm going to get there that's the nature of human relationships. You want to get somewhere, you want to see Crete, you're gonna to have to trust the plane and actually get on it. Jesus says, you wanna see spiritual truth, you wanna see God, you want to know eternal life, you wanna be part of the new heavens and the new earth, you have to entrust yourself to something much more secure than a bunch of flying metal. Entrust yourself to Jesus. You have to be willing to actually get in the plane. You have to actually be willing to embrace Jesus for yourself You have to actually be willing to give your life to him to say I believe who you are I believe your words are true I believe even when you say things that contradict what I naturally feel that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways and I will follow you and when you do that Jesus guarantees you will see him as he is. Notice the response, or what the outcome of this little encounter, what happens to the disciples, the end of verse 39. The end of verse 39, Jesus told them, Come, and you will see, in the end of verse 39, they came, and they saw. They saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, the tenth hour uh, indicates to us that this was 4 p.m., it was a common way of reckoning time in the ancient Jewish world that you start the day at about 6 a.m. about sunrise. So the tenth hour makes this about four p.m. And so they came, they saw where Jesus was, they stayed with him the rest of the day. And while it was while they were there staying with him, they came to understand exactly what they were seeking for. They came to see Jesus as he was. How do I know that? Well, because of the way that John has crafted this account and the way that he's written it. There's a little refrain here in these two verses. It's the verb stay, stay, stay. They stayed with Jesus, they came and stayed, and they stayed with him. That's intentional in order to jog our memory to say, hey, I think I've just read something reading John chapter 1 about Jesus staying here on earth. And if you'll jog your eyes up to John chapter 1 and verse 14, you'll see that the first time this concept of Jesus staying somewhere is introduced to us is in the prologue in John chapter 1 verse 14. Verse 14 says, the word, this eternal word, who is God and is with God, became flesh, became a man, and dwelt, he stayed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This eternal God has come to dwell among men, and here he is in this account, staying with Andrew and John. He's welcoming this one who is so much greater than a man is welcoming men into his very presence and revealing himself to them. They're seeing his glory. Glory is of the only God. But notice... It's not glory that's perceived with their physical eyes. The glory that the disciples saw. John chapter 1 verse 14 is John the Apostle's first hand eyewitness testimony he's saying I saw the glory of God in Jesus and this is his account in verses 35 and following we're reading of his first encounter with Jesus. This is where he first laid eyes on the glory of Jesus and I promise he's not talking about his flowing locks because look at what verse 14 says. It's the glory of what? It's the glory of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. It's spiritual reality. The glory of Jesus was not perceived in his physical appearance. It was perceived by the eyes of faith when you apprehended who Jesus really is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the only begotten from the Father, the giver of his spirit, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And it's only by believing in his word that the eyes of your heart are open to perceive the greatness of who Jesus really is. And in this first account, when Jesus tells the disciples, if you're willing to listen to my voice, to heed me, come, and I'll reveal my glory to you. And John wants us to know that that same glory is available to us today. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his glory, his glory of grace and truth is perceivable to everyone who comes to him and believes in his word. Everyone who comes to Jesus and says, I'll come where you want me to come, Lord. Who believes in his word, receives his spirit to open the eyes of your heart to perceive the greatness of Jesus Christ for yourself the same kind of personal encounter that Andrew and John are having with Jesus in the Judean wilderness is available to every person in the modern world who puts their faith in Jesus as their Lord, their Messiah. And this is the heart of Christian discipleship. The very heart of Christian discipleship is a personal encounter in which you come to the place where you give your life to Jesus for yourself, where you get in the plane, and the that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your hearts to see his glory for yourself. That happens when you're willing to come under his word and embrace him by faith. In that moment, everything changes. And the rest of what we see in this little text is the third step of Christian discipleship, the third phase, having been introduced to Jesus and having come and believed his word and so experienced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God for myself, That's going to change your life, and it's going to produce a life that's filled with inviting more people to know Jesus. That's what you see happening in the life of Andrew and John. Look down in verse 40. Look at what John does. The very first thing, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, the very first thing he did, probably stayed the night with Jesus, he first got up in the morning and found his brother Simon and said, we have found him, we have found the Messiah. The very first thing he does. Notice this word Messiah. It's a common word, obviously, that we, we are acc- accustomed to calling Jesus the Messiah. Do you realize, though, that the word Messiah only occurs in the New Testament twice? Usually he's called Christ. Mashiach is a Hebrew word. It means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there are three major functions in the people of Israel where you would anoint a person when they assume that office, a prophet who speaks for God, a priest who intercedes between God and man, and a king who would rule God's people for God. And in the development of the Old Testament, God increasingly gave clarity that there's going to be one ultimate Messiah, who would be God's prophet to speak his very word, who would be his priest, who would bring a final mediation between God and man, and would be God's ultimate king, reigning as God over his people forever. That's the Mashiach, that's the Messiah. But most of the New Testament passages that refer to Jesus refer to him not as Jesus the Messiah, but Jesus the Christ. Christos is just the Greek translation of that word. So Christ is not his last name. Christ is who he is. He is Jesus, the Christ, the ultimate anointed Messiah, ready to redeem God's people. And when you have an encounter with Jesus and you see this for yourself, you cannot help but want to tell other people. That's what happens to Andrew. Andrew comes to see that Jesus is the Messiah and the first thing he does is he darts out and says, I have to find my brother. And when he finds his brother, he says, Peter, we found him, you remember what John the Baptist had been telling us. You notice that Andrew doesn't run back to Galilee. He's still there in the Judean wilderness, so Peter had probably been in the area listening to John the Baptist as well. And so Andrew immediately goes and finds him and says, you know, everything that John the Baptist has been telling us about God's Messiah coming soon, we found him, and I met him. And it's not just what John the Baptist told me is true, but I've seen him for myself, and you got to come see him too. You see the cycle? John the Baptist is pointing Andrew to say, there he is, go meet him for yourself. Andrew meets him for himself and immediately he goes to get other people and says, you have to meet him for yourself too. You've heard about him, you know some things concerning him, but you've got to come face to face with Jesus for yourself. So he goes to Peter and says, we have found the Messiah and look what he does, verse 42 very simply, he brought him to Jesus. Now, I'm sure that Andrew didn't fully understand all that John the Baptist had told him. I'm sure that Andrew was aware of a lot of things about Jesus, because he'd been with John for a while, and John wasn't just repeatedly over and over for years on end saying, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. He would have been giving explanations and thorough, thorough explications of who this Messiah was. Andrew would have had a lot of information. But when you read the rest of the gospel, you find Andrew and Peter and John and James and all the disciples fumbling all over themselves time and time again. I think the best way of understanding what's happening in Andrew's life is that he has met Jesus for real. He's had a light bulb moment, but that light bulb's still kind of dim. He understands Jesus is the Messiah. He loves him and trusts him But there's still so much more room for him to grow in his knowledge of this Savior. But he doesn't have to wait for the full maturity of his faith to take place before he goes and invites other people to come know Jesus too. You know, you can know somebody truly even if you don't know them fully. Notice the nature of this interaction. This is one of the most pivotal human interactions in the history of the world. Peter is going to be the leader of the apostles. He's going to turn the world upside down. He's going to be a man like nobody else. This is one of the most pivotal interactions in the history of the world. And look where it takes place. It's in the middle of nowhere between two fisherman brothers, one telling the other, I found the Messiah. Come see for yourself. That's the way God's kingdom works. One soul at a time, coming to know Jesus for himself. God uses some of the most quiet, private, unknown moments in your life to make some of the most profound differences in your life and the world. You know, you have to believe that. If you're going to raise kids, or you're going to do anything else in life, so much of raising kids is you're interacting with kids in a simple, private way in your home or out, and no one is ever going to see it. And no one will ever know. But every time you say to your children, I found the Messiah, and you take them to Jesus, God will know. And you don't have to know everything there is to know in order to point somebody to Jesus, but you take them to Jesus. You say, there is a God in heaven. And my child, you do not have to search high and low and search the world to find a savior, a reason and a purpose and value for your life. You don't have to search high and low to find all of the answers for life. It is revealed to us in this one person. We've already found the Messiah, and he's in this book. And if you would believe the gospel for yourself, that you've sinned against God, and he's provided salvation through the death and resurrection of his own son, when you believe this gospel for yourself, you'll behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What you need is you need to know Jesus for yourself. Every time you bring your kid to Jesus, you're fulfilling the chain of discipleship. Every time you bring anybody to Jesus, without the fullness of a sermon. I mean, I, I'm the the youth pastor, and so I get to preach to some of your kids for 30 minutes every Sunday, and they manage. But I don't know how they would do if you open up the Bible and said, "I'm going to continue Ryan's exposition at the dinner table." every time we point our kids to Jesus, we are fulfilling the chain of discipleship, bringing somebody to Jesus. And that happens out of the fullness of your personal encounter with Jesus. Andrew had an encounter with Jesus and perceived that Jesus really is the Son of God, and he could not help but leave that encounter and want to bring other people to him too. So if you're lacking in energy and zeal and enthusiasm for Jesus. If you are lacking in strength to endure whatever you are experiencing in life, you have to go back to the well. You have to go back to the centerpiece of what it means to be a disciple. You have to go back to Jesus. You have to go back to the gospel and pray with faith that God would open your eyes again to realize, I'm a sinner under the judgment of God the fundamental reality of my life, the baseline of who I am as a human being, as a man or woman in God's image, is that there's a holy God who made me. And I've sinned against this God. And I deserve, not just today, but yesterday, to be crushed under the infinite wrath of a holy God. And this God was not willing to abide an entire human race to damn themselves to eternity apart from him, but entered into this world The eternal world became flesh and dwelt among us, and this God stood in my place and bore the fullness of the wrath that I deserve for my sins and removed them and took my sin away and then promised that if I would come to him, he would take my sin and he would receive me and he would never cast me out. He would take my sin and make me a child of God and give me eternal life. He would give me my, his very spirit so that my faith will never fade. That's just basic Christianity 101. I just said it with a little bit of enthusiasm. <laughs> and that's what is at the center of what it means to be a Christian, is that you actually believe that for yourself. You believe that you deserve the eternal condemnation of God. And you know it because you've seen your heart. You know you don't even keep your own standard. How far short do you fall of the standard of God? You know you deserve his condemnation. And you look at the cross and you see that God was willing to endure that for you to remove it as far as the east is from the west. And you look at God your father and you see a face that is full of joy when he looks upon you. And he sees not your sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he delights in you as he delights in an only begotten son. And you believe that. And when you believe that, you cannot help but experience some kind of joy, some kind of strength, some sign of courage that things are not nearly as bad as they could or should be. And necessarily, you will tell other people, I found the Messiah. You've got to know him for yourself too. Let me take you to him. A very simple account. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means be introduced to Jesus, believe his words so that you encounter him for yourself, and go invite other people. And when you invite other people, Jesus will do the rest. Look what Jesus does in verse 42. So Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, notice he looked at him. It's the only two occurrences of this verb in the Gospel of John. Jesus looked at him. He sized him up. He saw Peter wanted to know who he was and he said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means a rock. He's speaking of this transformation of Peter's character that's going to slowly but surely mature through the rest of Peter's walk with Jesus. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus took care of the rest. That's what it means to be a disciple. You meet Jesus, you tell other people, you go back to encounter Jesus again, and your belief in the gospel, and your growing in your understanding of him, and you go out and you bring more people to meet Jesus. And as you do, you're spending time with Jesus again, and you go out to bring more people to meet Jesus, and one day, all of the people who have come to know Jesus will dwell in a new heavens and a new earth And we will see him face to face. Not his, whatever color his skin is, but we will see the glory of his grace and truth. Lord, thank you for the reality that we get to be disciples of Jesus. Thank you for the reminder from your word of what a simple and profound thing it is to live in this world. Lord, we know there's so many things that occupy our attention, things that we must do. And God, we do ask you that you would give us clarity on the things that will last. So much in this world is transient, is fading, but by faith we perceive the things that are eternal. Not one jot or tittle of your word will pass away, and so we ask that you would give us hearts that cling to your word, and in clinging to your word, we'd be clinging to you yourself. Give us encouragement and zeal this week to live lives worthy of the gospel, worthy of the, the Savior that we serve. We ask that you would give us opportunities to speak of Jesus, to bring people to know him, and that you would enable us to make the gospel clear and powerful as we ought to, and that we would get to see something of the fruit of you bringing your people one soul at a time to know your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.